This is Positive Parenting. Parenting expertise and advice from best-selling parenting author and national newspaper columnist, Mr. Dad, Armin Brott. Welcome to Positive Parenting. I'm Armin Brott, the founder of MrDad.com. In the wake of Brexit and recent elections and other unusual world events, many of us feel weighed down by uncertainty. It's no surprise that the more interconnected our world becomes, the more immediately we feel the consequences of current events. But what you may not know is that while the brain hates uncertainty, it also holds the key to adapting to and even thriving in uncertain times. In this part of today's show, we're going to be talking with a world-renowned neuroscientist, an entrepreneur and two-time TED speaker who's going to draw on his two decades of research to tell us about some of the startling truths about the brain and how it perceives the world. We're also going to talk about the long-debated question about whether humans see reality or not. And the simple answer, according to our guest, is no, we don't. In fact, our brains didn't and couldn't have anyway evolved to see the world accurately. What we see is subjective, not objective. And everything that we see or do or think is filtered through our past experiences. Understanding all of this can help us to see differently, which can ultimately unlock our ability to create, innovate, and affect change in every aspect of our lives. I'm Armin Brat. We'll jump into all that and a lot more when Positive Parenting continues right after this. More with Mr. Dad, Armin Brat, after this. From the MrDad.com radio network. You're not wired to have a response to this sound. You're neutral to it. You hear it every time you finish a meal and never feel anything. But if we were able to associate this sound with a new stimulus, save the food, we've achieved pulling a natural response from you. Save the food. Why are we doing this, you may ask. Save the food. Because this ad is trying to change your after-meal behaviour through brainwashing. Because food waste costs the average family $1,500 a year. Save the food. Cha-ching. And $1,500 extra bucks is like getting a pay raise. Save the food. Cha-ching. You're promoted. Which could pay for your child's braces. Save the food. Cha-ching. You're promoted. Check out my braces. So when you hear this sound, rethink your behaviour. Cook it. Store it. Share it. Just don't waste it. For tips and recipes, visit savethefood.com. Brought to you by NRDC and the Ad Council. Welcome back to Positive Parenting. I'm Armin Brat, and my guest for this part of today's show is Bo Lotto, who's the author of Deviate, The Science of Seeing Differently. Bo, thanks for joining us. Hello, it's great to be here. Thank you. You know, I should I should point out that the the book itself from the very beginning is an exercise in seeing things differently. You open it up and expect to see the the cover or the flap text on a horizontal plane, but it's on a, a vertical one. It's uh, it's just interesting that you have to you have to kind of keep turning the book around to to read the text that's in it. And there's a number of of elements inside the book where you have to turn things sideways and everything. It's uh, I, I imagine that that was all deliberate. Yeah, or it was just very bad printing, one or the other. Yes, um, yeah, no, it was indeed uh, deliberate. And in fact, there is the the first motion illusion uh, on a printed book uh, as well. 
um, in a form of a flip book. Uh, but yes, the book is about seeing differently. It's about perception. So I'm a firm believer in tropes. You are the thing that you talk about. And so the book needed to be something that embodied the topic of perception, in particular, where perception comes from and, and how and why we see differently. You know, the whole idea of perception is something that that's, it seems wildly philosophical in a way. And I think that, that you know, you start talking about is, is what we are experiencing reality or is it only your perception of reality or is there such a thing as reality or, you know, are we somebody's dream or all of this stuff. How do you even begin to whittle all that stuff down so you can have a conversation about the topic of, of perception? Well, for me, one of the first places to start is to remind people, including myself, actually, that everything begins with perception in, in some sense, that who we are, how we define ourselves, the colors we see, the clothes we wear, the people we fall in love with, to a large extent, all begins with perception. So to understand perception is really to understand what it is to be human. And so that's one of the very important places that I'd like to start with thinking about it. The other is to remind people that there is a physical world. Uh, this is not postmodern relativism. Uh, it's just that we don't see it. Or more importantly, we don't see it accurately. Uh, because everything we see is grounded in our history, and not just the history of our individual history, but our culture history, our evolutionary history, what evolution gives you is utility, not accuracy. So we evolved to see the way we did because it was useful to do so, which is not the same thing as seeing what's really there. You talk about that throughout the book, about how we don't see reality and our brains didn't even evolve to help us see reality. We're seeing something else. Take, make that a little more concrete for me. Yeah, we're seeing what proved useful to see in the past. Um, and the reason why that is necessarily true is for at least two reasons. First is that we have no physical access to the world itself other than through our senses. So we sense the electrical, electrical chemical energy of the world through light or vibration or the olfactants that come in through your nose. But these things conflate multiple aspects of the world. So, for instance, take light. Light can arise from an object that's large and far away or small and up close. The light is exactly the same, but your brain has no way of knowing whether it is in fact a large object far away or a small object that's close. And people can prove this to themselves by simply holding their, up their finger and lining it up to something that's far away and making it more or less the same size. Now, of course, they're not the same size, but as far as your retina is concerned, they are the same. But we don't see them as the same because it wasn't been useful to do so. So the only information your brain has to see, other than the data at the moment, is its history of what that data meant for behavior in the past. The second reason why we need to see the world in this way is because the world is constantly changing. To see the world accurately doesn't really help because even if we could, the world doesn't come with instructions. It doesn't tell us what to do. It doesn't tell us why this object is important or not important. What's more, it doesn't tell us that it might be important in this context, but not important in another. So your brain evolved to constantly adapt, which is why the most successful systems in nature's, nature are the ones that are most adaptable. Right? Okay. So, yeah. 
So in fact, the idea that we don't see reality is in fact incredibly freeing. What I mean by that is we don't see it in any way that's accurate. We say it's the way it's useful. And pain is a perfect example. Pain does not, if we think about pain as a perception, there's nothing painful in the world. The world itself doesn't feel pain. It doesn't exist in the world. Sadness doesn't exist in the world. In the same way that color doesn't exist in the world. These are feelings, perceptions that we project onto the world. And the reason why I do so is because it was useful. But in that sense, it's not really accurate. Just wondering, I mean, so I think it's a fascinating discussion, and I think it's, you know, I, I spend some time thinking about this just if I'm, I don't even, my, my mind is wandering, and I'm wondering if I'm looking at somebody, if they see things exactly the way that I do, and I mean physically see them, I mean, you know, because you can never get into somebody's head or see things through their own retina. So, you know, I see something as a particular color, I'm calling that blue. Are they seeing blue but if i were to see what they saw would it would they really be seeing red but they're calling it blue you know what i mean just this yeah, I know kind exactly of, what you, mean. It, it, you can drive yourself crazy with that sort of stuff how do you make this a little bit more accessible when you can say well it makes us it makes us more free to be creative if we see if we understand that we're not seeing what's what we think we're seeing what's there yeah uh the way it helps us to be more creative is we can use the process of perception itself in order to create new perceptions. Because our brain is plastic, right? we can adapt our brain to new experiences. We can also have those experiences, the experiences that happen inside our head. We can imagine. And imagining, we actually change the functional structure of our brain, which enables us to see things that we couldn't see before. I mean, one of the most powerful reasons for why we are born, in a sense, too early, of course, it's to a large extent because the birth canal is, in a, is a sense, too small for a larger head, but it also means that we come into the world with a very plastic brain that's able to adapt itself to the local environment, which is one of the reasons why humans have been able to inhabit such a diversity of niches that other animals can't because we can change, we can adapt, and we adapt according to the, our local experience. Okay? So another example, of course, is language. Language is not a function of the world. It's completely arbitrary and made up by humans. If we weren't here, it wouldn't exist. But the consequences of having something like language is obvious. And the only reason we can have language is because we have a brain that creates perception in the way that it does. Yeah. Right. And through experience, what experience gives us, and this is really important, actually, especially when thinking about parents and thinking about education and also thinking about what you were saying about being inside someone else's head, which is that or rather not being able to be inside someone else's head, including the head of your children. Exactly. Right? Yes. Which yeah. is that what experience gives you are assumptions and biases and assumptions and biases determine to a certain extent, what we're going to perceive, what we're going to do, how we're going to behave and think, given any particular stimulus, any particular situation. And so these assumptions are essential for our survival. We have all kinds of assumptions where we take a step, our brain assumes all kinds of things about the floor, about our legs, but these assumptions can also get in the way of seeing differently, which is why experience and the plasticity of the brain enables us to create new assumptions. But of course, a lot of these assumptions we inherit. We inherit from our parents. 
we inherit from our culture, right? And they become part of who we are. And so when we actually look at another person, we perceive another person, it's no different from when we're perceiving an object. And if we remember that objects are not colored, right? The coloring is part of our mind. So is true for another person. We project the color, we project the meaning onto another person because we have no access to what's inside their head. So every personality that you perceive is actually inside you projected outwards. Yeah. Right? yeah. And it's only through interaction you can better understand the why the person does something. Right? Yeah, otherwise, exactly. Other than that, you're projecting it onto them. Right. Talking with Bo Lotto, who's the author of Deviate, The Science of Seeing Differently. We're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we're going to keep talking about all sorts of things having to do with seeing things differently and hearing things differently. I'm Armin Brandt, and you're listening to Positive Parenting. I'm Paul George of the Indiana Pacers. When I was six, I had one thing on my mind. When I was six, my days were spent playing basketball every chance I could. When I was six, my dream was to make it to the NBA. When I was six, my mom had a stroke. So I want you to learn the signs of a stroke fast. F-A-S-T. F, face drooping. A, arm weakness. S, speech difficulty. T, time to call 911. Because the sooner they get to the hospital, the sooner they'll get treatment. And that can make a remarkable difference in their recovery. I'm Paul George. Protect the ones you love. Spot a stroke F-A-S-T. Fast. Life is why. Visit strokeassociation.org. Brought to you by the American Stroke Association and the Ad Council. It may be hard to believe, but people just like you are already saving money. Feedthepig.org makes it easy. Their simple savings plan teaches you how to start saving without going overboard. So you don't need to mooch off your friends. You gonna finish that grape? You mean the one in my mouth? You don't need to stop buying the necessities. What you're smelling is a natural musk. Ew. You don't need to be a medical test subject. How do you feel? Mostly okay. I... <laughs> Sometimes, though. <laughs> you don't need to get a second job as a stuntman. You just need an internet connection. Don't get left behind. Start your personal savings plan with the tips and tools on feedthepig.org. That way, you don't need to sell your soul to the devil. Fifteen bucks is the best I can do. All right, deal. Brought to you by the American Institute of CPAs and the Ad Council. Welcome back to Positive Parenting. I'm Armin Brat. If you're just joining us, I'm talking with Bo Lotto, who's the author of Deviate, The Science of Seeing Differently. And just before the break, you, you mentioned language and how important that is. And I just had a, a flash to one of my, my favorite books. I think it was written sometime in the 30s, a guy named Stuart Chase called The Tyranny of Words. Mm. And he talks about things, you know, that a cat, we, we think that we understand what a cat is. And it's a little easier. We can probably come to some general acceptance or generally agreed definition of a cat. But if you start thinking about words like freedom, you know, that doesn't mean the same to any two people, probably. But we throw no. it around. We throw it around like we understand what it is. And, and you know, it's, it's all the perception that you're talking about, that I perceive something to be freedom, but somebody else perceives it to be tyranny. And, uh, I mean, it's just, the whole thing is just 
wildly fascinating. But I, I want to have you to go into a little bit more about the the importance of uncertainty. And you mentioned to me just before we went on the air the the issue of how we need to be certain in order to come to terms with being uncertain. But certainty is a flexible concept. So how do we <laughs> how do we get there? Yeah. So the the you could argue the fundamental problem that the brain evolved to solve, and not just our brain, any living brain evolved to solve, is the problem of uncertainty. During evolution, if you weren't sure that was a predator, it was too late. Your brain <laughs> evolved yeah. to take what is uncertain and make it certain, to take something that is meaningless and make it meaningful, because that enabled us to survive. Because to predict what's going to happen next was a huge, of course, selective advantage. To die is easy. It's staying alive that's hard. And in order to do so, we have to be able to deal with uncertainty, ambiguity. Right? And so we deal with ambiguity. Um, our brain evolved to deal with ambiguity so much that we it's a space that we actually tend to hate. And almost every behavior is an attempt to decrease uncertainty, to increase certainty. And you could argue this is why there's so much emphasis, for instance, in schools on, on answers, on efficiency, because questions are actually creating uncertainty. Right? And what's ironic is that the only place we can go, or one of the only places we can go if we're going to be creative and adapt and see differently, is to step into uncertainty, the very place that evolution has told us to avoid. So okay. a very deep question is, how do we actually enable people to step into uncertainty? And this is one of the most, possibly one of the most powerful things about parenting. You can't step into uncertainty unless you have a place of certainty from which to step. And this, you could argue, is one of the most powerful things about a loving relationship. That with my own three children, I would believe I'm a successful parent, or one of the ways I would think about being a successful parent is that if I give them enough love and security that enables them to be able to ask questions, to take risks, to step into uncertainty, because there's, they know there's a place that they can come back to. It's not to protect them from the world. Right. It's to create an environment that enables them to actually engage with the world, to take risks. Right. So you have and to you have actually, that, that feeling of safety. I mean, it's the same kind of a thing that happens when kids are, are six or seven months old. They they crawl away a little bit. They look over their shoulder. They want to make sure you're still there. If you're there exactly. and, you, and you look happy, then then they're fine to keep exploring. But if you look like they're like you're worried or something, then then they may come crawling back because they're, exactly. they're going to be worried. And it's actually been measured. You know that invisible tether that you have, that, that children have to you, that what you were describing, exactly that, that they, they step away from you, well, not step away, they, they fall and crawl and roll away from you, right? And they will only go a certain distance. And they look behind you, they see if you're still there, yeah? And they will tend to play at a certain radius. And then that radius gets bigger and bigger, and then when you come to my kids, age of 18, the radius is all the other side of the world, right? But we know that when kids are feeling insecure, that radius gets shorter and shorter. The more confident and loved the kids feel, the further is that radius, right? In other words, that love enables them to step away from you because there's tremendous power in them exploring the world. Because in exploring the world, that's how your brain makes meaning. 
It doesn't make meaning by passively receiving information, by sitting in a classroom chair and being told facts. Your brain makes meaning by physically engaging with the real world and making meaning from it. And so the more security that we enable children to step into uncertainty, to, to take the risk and explore, the more likely they are, they are to be able to adapt in the future. Right. Right. So and what is what is going on here then? I mean, you hear so much about kids, teenagers, young adults who are have kind of grown up in this system of answers and correct answers and focusing on grades and accomplishments, and they aren't really developing the skills of thinking and taking risks and making mistakes. And it's getting to be a very, very common topic of conversation these days about kids not learning how to fall down, I mean, literally or figuratively. So how do... How do we let go? I mean, in, in a way, we're giving them too much certainty. Uh, in a way, we're, it depends on how you think about certainty. I suppose you could argue, yes, in a way, we are giving too much certainty. Or rather, we're giving the wrong kind of certainty. Um, in fact, I would argue we're doing kind of the opposite. We're telling them that the world is a scary, dangerous place. When I see a child that's you know, just a tiny little child of a foot and a half tall and they've got a big helmet on and they're walking around on grass, the message to that child is that the world is dangerous and scary and uncertain. Right? But you can they count on learn. me. Yes. Yeah. And so we, we protect them from that. But as soon as you put children into a context that gives them the ability to take responsibility for themselves, you can often decrease the number of, of accidents that happen because they learn how to deal with the world. So we're actually the health and safety madness in some sense, you could argue. While we're, while we're reducing short-term risk, the braised knees, the cut lips, or a bruised shin, we're actually increasing long-term risk, which is the inability to adapt to the future. And if you think about the world that our kids are going to inhabit, because the world is becoming increasingly interconnected, it means we'll have increasingly... Um, what are called emergent attractor states that are unpredictable. The world is going to become increasingly unpredictable simply because it's increasingly interconnected, which means what we, the skills we really need to give children are the skills to adapt and the courage, not confidence, the courage to step into uncertainty. And I'd argue one of the most important disciplines or subjects in that context is actually science because science is all about playing all about stepping into uncertainty, the excitement of not knowing. That's actually what defines science, not the scientific method. That's the craft of science. But true science is about asking a good question. We don't even teach children how to ask questions, much less what a good question is in school. We teach them how to be a sous chef, not a chef. So, But asking the questions is part of it, and then you have to be unsatisfied in a way with a concrete answer. Yeah, you have to be excited. Right? You have to be excited about not knowing. To not know is something in our society we actually frown upon. Right? Imagine, and there's tremendous cost to, to this. Uh, imagine, if you think about the way we teach children and the way we engage in conflict in the world. If you and I are in conflict, the way I've been taught from society and from school and normal experience is that I need to prove that you're wrong and to try to shift you towards me. And you're trying to do exactly the opposite, prove that I'm wrong to shift me towards you. 
right? The situation is set up to win, but not to learn. And it's only in conflict that we can actually learn anything. To enter a situation that's different from what we expect is the situation where we have the possibility of crossing a boundary. But the problem is we enter conflict with certainty and, and answers. But what would happen if we entered conflict with a question, with listening, with empathy? Now you have a situation where you can actually learn. And in that kind of conflict, it's, there's actually a potential for a positive outcome, which is that you complexify your assumptions, you complexify your biases, which makes you a more adaptable person. And also goes a long way towards perpetuating the human race. Yeah. yeah. It increases okay. openness. It increases compassion between people and respect. Yeah. Bo Lotto, the author of Deviate, The Science of Seeing Differently. It's a fascinating book besides being visually really interesting just to hold in your hands and flip through. There's wonderful information within it as well. Bo, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you so much. My name is Tom Thornton. And my name is Cindy Thornton. We've been married 38 years. We're retired, and this is how we live united. We play golf and we travel. But we also decided we were going to give to and volunteer with United Way at our community free health clinic. I do the nursing at the clinic. I work the front office, checking in patients, greeting them, making them feel comfortable. United Way is how we contribute because we know our time and money are going to the right places, the places that need it most and implement it best. Judging by the thank yous we get at the clinic, I'd say we're doing the right thing with our retirement too. We even get a few bless shoes. It's incredible. We're Tom and Cindy Thornton. We volunteer at our community free health clinic. So we don't just wear the shirt. We live it. Give. Advocate. Volunteer. Live United. Go to liveunited.org. Brought to you by United Way and the Ad Council. Welcome back to Positive Parenting. I'm Armand Brought, and it's time for an Ask Mr. Dad segment. And this one deals with tantrums, something that we've all, as parents, had to cope with. Dear Mr. Dad, my three-year-old throws tantrums all the time. When she does it at home, I can handle it, but when we're out in public and she goes nuts, I find it very hard to cope. I've tried timeouts, taking away treats, and pretty much everything else short of spanking, which I don't ever want to do, but she just keeps on resorting to tantrums as a way to get what she wants, and I have to admit that sometimes I give in just to get her to calm down. What can I do to get her to find other ways to express herself? The first thing to do is to stop giving in, ever. By caving to your daughter's blackmail, and that's exactly what it is, you've told her that if she keeps up the tantrum for long enough, you'll eventually pay up. But you're not going to do that anymore, right? So let's talk about some better approaches. One of the most effective ways of dealing with a tantrum is to ignore it. If you're at home, just turn around and walk out of the room. Not too far, though. You want to make sure your daughter's not going to be able to hurt herself or anything else. Without an audience, pitching a tantrum is a lot less effective. Naturally, this approach isn't going to work if your daughter has thrown herself down in the middle of the cookie aisle at the grocery store. In cases like that, pick her up and take her to the car, where she can scream to her heart's content while you stand outside checking your email on your phone, or at least pretending to. The point is for her to see that you're not paying attention to her. Ignoring tantrums is great, but wouldn't it be even better if you could keep them from happening at all? One way to do that is to keep track of the times and places your daughter does her tantrums. 
If she's tired or hungry, for example, taking her food shopping will have predictable results. Another tantrum avoidance technique is to talk with your daughter before you go out and make sure that she knows exactly what kind of behavior you're expecting. You might also want to offer a small incentive. If you behave nicely while we're out, I'll make your favorite dessert when we get home. This is different from a bribe, which is paid in advance. Praise your daughter's calm behavior a few times during your outing. Although they don't always act like it, kids really do want to please us. Perhaps the best tantrum-preventing idea came from Dr. Myrna Schur, who's the author of Thinking Parent, Thinking Child, and who was a guest on this show. It's what Schur calls the same-slash-different game, which goes like this. During a calm time, ask your daughter to pay attention to you while you do two things, such as clapping your hands and flapping your arms. Then ask, did I do the same thing or something different? Of course, she'll say different. Play the game for a few minutes every day and make it fun by incorporating some silliness, asking, for example, whether a goldfish and a dog are the same or different. The next time your daughter starts down a road you know ends in a tantrum, say, can you think of a different way to tell me what you want? Chances are that'll stop her in her tracks. This technique, which I know sounds perfectly simple, is part of Schur's I Can Problem Solve method which for more than 30 years has been shown to be extremely effective. Give it a try and let us know how it goes. We'll be back next week with another brand new show for you. Until then, I'm Armin Brat. Thanks for listening to Positive Parenting. You can get more information on today's show and what we're working on in the weeks ahead at MrDad.com. While you're there, visit the MrDad.com gift shop with everything you need to help you become the dad or mom you want to be. Positive Parenting is a production of the MrDad.com radio network. Now, go be a great parent.